Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session, Real Life Edition. I'm outside in the beautiful California summer, and I'm joined by Dr. Alan Vinuk. Professor Vinuk is, he'll need no introduction to this audience. He is an expert in GI malignancies and colorectal cancer. He's a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, where he's been on the faculty for, for let's just say, a, a while now, Dr. Vinuk. You've been on the faculty for a while. You did your fellowship there, um, and you joined the faculty thereafter. Yes, I, uh, I've been on faculty since 1988, which is a, a lot of years, uh, and did my fellowship here as well. And... Um, and, and uh, I mean, I think listeners of this podcast will know you well. And uh, so I, there's so much I want to cover with you. So let me, let me just start, pick up in the beginning. Okay, so I, you know, I've read about you. I always do my little background reading in preparation of these, these podcasts. Um, and I know you went to Rutgers for your undergraduate. But what I don't know, I don't know where you grew up. And I don't know what took you to Rutgers. Are you an East Coast guy? I grew up in a town called Metuchen, Metuchen, New Jersey, which is sort of halfway between Philadelphia and uh, New York City. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I grew up there, went to high school at Metuchen. And I went to Rutgers College. That was a nearby college. And for a variety of personal and other reasons, that was where I went. Um, my dad worked at Rutgers, was actually blind. And uh, so we had sort of limited opportunities. And I didn't really, we didn't have the internet back then. It didn't even occur to me to try to go to college anywhere else. So I stayed at Rutgers. And You were close to home. Yes. And... I read you were a sport before you went to medical school. You were a sports writer. This is true. I <laughs> I was the sports editor of the college newspaper at Rutgers. I see. And it turns out I was at Rutgers when they were in the heyday of their athletic prowess in 1976, which is the year I graduated from Rutgers. They actually went undefeated in basketball and went to the Final Four. Oh. So I sat courtside at the Final Four and watched Bobby Knight throw chairs around. Ah, oh, it was Rutgers or IU? Well, Rutgers and Indiana were in the Final yeah. Four. Rutgers okay. played Michigan in uh-huh. the semifinals, and Indiana played UCLA in the other semifinals. I see. So, I, so that was sort of an amazing opportunity. And, and I wrote, I wound up writing sort of as a stringer for Associated Press for a couple of years thereafter. What year was this? This was 1976, 77, okay. 78. Was Magic playing for UCLA? No, no. Ma- well, Magic was at Michigan State. Oh, Michigan and State, Magic, that's right. Oh, Magic yes. played in Michigan. He was there for 79 uh, is when they went to the Final Four, right. I think. So I just missed him. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, that was Larry Bird was playing at Indiana State. That was the year that it, it, Michigan State and Indiana State played each other. And little known fact, but Bob Wachter, who was our chairman of medicine, was yeah. actually at the Final Four in 1979. <laughs> you wouldn't have recognized him, though. He was he went to Penn, uh-huh. which, which happened to make the Final Four that, that year. year. And he was the Quaker. He was the mascot. No, he wasn't. Yes. Bob Wachter was the mascot? Bob Wachter, <laughs> Bob, Bob, Bob the, the COVID podcast guru, yes. was, was, a, was a mascot for uh, Penn Quakers. Uh, see, I didn't. That didn't come up. I I had a chance to talk with Dr. Walker on a prior episode. I guess uh, yeah, next time. So, I'll so bring that it up. little known fact. But uh, <laughs> so yeah, and uh, and then I obviously uh, ultimately had to make a decision about what I wanted to do. I loved sports writing, but I I obviously chose a different path. Yes, and uh, when you were a sports writer, was it all sports you would cover? I covered mostly. Uh, basketball college basketball and then i did a little bit of uh football uh, and and actually I covered the yankees for a bit the summer filling in for somebody from associated press who was out so i did a little of that but mostly it was college basketball i see and then um what brought you to california since you've been here a while was uh residency at uc davis 
Well, so actually, so what happened is I went to, st I started medical school at Rutgers Medical School. Mm -hmm. I went there for two years. Rutgers at that time was an, a trans in transition to a four-year medical school. Mm -hmm. So about a third of the class had to, there weren't, weren't clinical facilities for uh, the entire class. So a third of the class transferred out of Rutgers to other medical schools. I see. That turned out to be the era when uh, the Bakke decision had come down in the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. which was that there had been a sort of reverse discrimination against uh, uh, Caucasians, and medical schools were under an edict to open up their enrollments to more people from the, from the U.S. students. So it turns out that students transferring from uh, one medical school in the U.S., looking for another medical school were at great advantage because other medical schools needed to take transfer students. Mm. So I happened to parlay that into ch transferring to UCSF for my third and fourth years of medical school. I see. And oh. that's what brought me here. I see. And then, uh, but I had a public health service scholarship when I went to medical school. And so I did just my internship at UCSF and then went into the public health service for two years and then did my residency at UC Davis. We moved to Sacramento, where I ran an indigent clinic in Sacramento and for my public health service obligation, and uh, my wife had a great job in Sacramento, so we stayed there for my residency. I see. And then I came back here for fellowship. And you came back here for fellowship. So I wonder if you might walk us through, you know, I'm really curious, what was it that drew you into oncology first? What made you go into this as a field? Well, uh, it never occurred to me that I would go into oncology when I started medical school or actually even as I was uh, going through my uh, medical, uh, in medical school, but at the, literally my first, my first clerkship or my first rotation as an intern at UCSF was on what was called the CRI, right? At that time it was the cancer ward the, and it was um, really, it was a pretty horrific place. Uh, you know, chemotherapy was, was really nascent at the time. People were, you heard a lot of retching and, you know, it was very unpleasant, everything about it. Mm -hmm. But the attending physician at the time was a guy named Alan Newman. Alan Newman. Who was a, whose uh, brother is Randy Newman, the, the, uh, this short people uh, musician. <laughs> uh, Alan Newman retired a few years ago, but he was the oncologist. And I just worked with him and I thought, wow, that he is really a great guy. And I realized that it was on the cutting edge of science and uh, and you know, medicine and the advances could be great. So I just was became enamored with oncology. Then it was literally my first real exposure to it. I see. And Alan Newman, what was his specialty? He was a general a general generalist. oncologist who, at the time, private practitioners that could had access to UCSF. So he was in, in primary general practice as an oncologist, but just really, I think, established said to me, "This is this is the kind of practice I wanted to. This is what I wanted to do." I see. And then you went off to residency where you focused on all sorts of things and you decided to come back to UCSF for fellowship. Correct. And when you came back for UCSF for fellowship, I wonder what the environment was like back then. Um, you know, what was the research landscape like? What was the trials landscape like? What did you imagine your kind of fa fellow to faculty transition would be? Yeah. So when I came, UCSF had been, uh, was just being established as a sort of leading department of medicine. Holly Smith was the chairman of medicine at mm -hmm. the time. And uh, they, it was a new, the cancer, the head of the cancer program was a guy named Ed Cadman, who had just been recruited from Yale. He was a folate guy, a folate metabolism guy. They had had a number of really high, well-known uh, dignitaries or well-known scientists before I got here. But when I got here, it was sort of on a rebound and the, the program was just re rebooting. Um, at the time, they had just created the cooperative groups, the NCI cooperative groups. It was what was called the Northern California Oncology Group, believe mm. it or not, mm -hmm. and that actually went belly up about a year later. <laughs> uh, so, in fact, when I was started here, the 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 presence or of clinical research in in oncology was almost non-existent. Mm -hmm. It was it was very much in a slump. It, it, was, it was sort of in a nadir of where it had been in the past. But when you started, you were faculty at UCSF. You weren't part of the private model that proceeded. Correct. So I I was. I think that I was the fourth or fifth uh, faculty person to join the the practice at the time. I see. And I did all I, we did everything, but I mostly did solid tumors. At the time, uh, there they had a nascent bone marrow transplant program. A guy named Mark Bosdeck had been recruited from Wisconsin to mm -hmm. do that. Uh, they had a couple of of sort of physician scientists. And uh, Lloyd Damon was actually a fellow of my co-fellow with me, and Lloyd joined the faculty at the same time I did. I see. Hope Rugo was a year behind, a couple years behind me. 
but we were really the very beginning of the, the, the presence now of, of what we have now. Your practice back then, all solid tumors, and the tools in your tool bag must have been limited. I did, we didn't realize it. We were, we, you know, we had five FU. Yeah. Uh, I remember when I, we, I saw a bladder cancer patient at the VA, and the and the attending said to her, "Well, well, you know, what do you think we should do?" I said, "I don't think there's any treatment for bladder cancer." So, well, no, there's a new there's a new paper in Jace. You know, we should read this paper, and that's where we were. We were literally just starting to develop treatments, but it, the chemotherapy was was rudimentary, and it, we were really uh, we had no tools really. I see. When was the moment, so this must have been 1988, 1989, you're, you're starting the faculty career. Um, you know, when was the moment that you decided, or, or did it take a while before you started to hone in on GI malignancies and, and, and colorectal cancer? Yeah. So um, at the, the time, the head of the, uh, on the fellowship program was Mark Schumann, who is, mm -hmm. of course, still here. Mm -hmm. And our Mark gave me probably this, the best advice I, I'd ever get. He I gave a, a journal club or, or something, and he always helped brought the fellows in to critique them. I was a fellow at the time, and Mark critiqued my 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 journal club. Said, oh, you know, he, he he gave me generally positive vibes, but he said, you know, he said he said I think you could be successful. What you need to do is you need to pick something that you will be better at than anybody else. Mm -hmm. Just develop an expertise. And at the time, like there was no, <laughs> there was it was wide open. We yeah. we weren't specialists, so I. Um, I went into liver. I decided to do things in the liver mostly because UCSF had a ripe group of young, enthusiastic people working on liver, liver disease, and liver tumors. So it seemed like a natural place for me to go. I see, and that lends itself to colorectal cancer because I know you've had an interest in, you've written eloquently about the probably still one of the most challenging spaces in colorectal cancer, which is who are the people with liver metastases or pulmonary metastases that we can cure. And who are the people that we can't cure? Right. Well, and back then, of course, we um, we didn't think we could cure anybody. But mm. it was early in I'd say early in my career we realized that liver tumors were a unique opportunity. And I happened to also have the the advantage of at the just the same time I started on faculty, uh, Bob Warren, who's a who was the chief of surgical oncology, is mm. actually married to Emily Bergsland. Oh. Uh, but Bob uh, Bob is no longer practicing, but He's, he's still got a lab, but Bob came from Memorial, and he was he was gung ho, and and we started had a, a tissue bank, and we were sort of ahead of our time, and so we saw we thought we could make liver tumors, especially colorectal liver mets, a special area of interest, and that that's sort of how we got interested. The other thing that had happened early on was at the time, as when you had only FUD five FU or FUDR, you had right. to try to make make what you could out of it. And we were one of the lead places in the country putting in pumps. Yeah. So we had actually a plenary paper at, at ASCO, I think in 86 or 87, on pump chemotherapy in patients with liver mets. And I had taken that on. It, it turns out that my mentors were not in oncology. We really didn't have much leadership in oncology. But I hooked on with uh, Dave Hone, who was, a chief, who was at the time a surgeon, who wound up going to MD Anderson a year or two later but also Ernie Ring, who was the head of the new discipline of interventional radiology then. And he would do anything at any time to anything. Anybody had was really gung-ho, really excited. Hmm. And so I, I sort of worked with them as a group to, to figure out how, what to do, how we could treat liver tumors, and colorectal cancer was a natural extension of that. Now, oh, fascinating. It sounds like, you know, there's two pearls that I see in what you said that are universal, always applicable. One is you you sought opportunity where it was at the time. You know, you look in the universe of cancer where you can make a difference with the tools you have at the moment, and it happened to be liver tumors, and this was a great opportunity. And the next thing is you looked around and saw who were the people you could work with, and the combination of that overlapping Venn diagram was where you found yourself. Right, and I think uh, I'm lucky. UCSF is a very collaborative place, always was. And, uh, and also, I think we were just, just really ready to take off at the time. Uh, Nancy Asher was recruited that same year to be the head of the, the new liver transplant program. Mm -hmm. She was very gung-ho, and one of the first things we did was look at who we could transplant who had liver cancer. And, in fact, we, we, you know, we, we sort of sorted, helped to sort that out. So it was really having a lot of collaborative people all around us who were very excited about doing these things. 
And I want to talk for a second about 5FU. So my understanding was in the 1990s, you know, this was, you know, pre-oxaliplatin days, um, 5FU was the tool of choice. And briefly, you flirted with levamisole, and that didn't pan out. Um, and, and eventually, you would add leucovorin, I think, in that decade. Um, and I, my understanding is that, you know, what people did was, and there's so many papers that reflect this, was they tried 5FU different ways. Bolus 5FU, bolus 5FU, followed by pump 5FU. You alluded to pump, I assume you mean... Intrahepatic. Intra, intra, oh, yeah, intrahepatic. So that was the other choice, right? right. So there's intrahepatic, hepatic arterial infusions of Correct. chemotherapy. Um, there ha, there was, uh, of course, IV pumps that were later placed externally to the body. Um how did you think about 5-FU these days? Do you do you still agree that 5-FU, you give it different ways, you still get response? What are your thoughts? Well, I actually, uh, some years ago, uh, so 5-FU uh, was the, the treatment du jour until uh, 2004 when when Folfox uh, mm-hmm. sur- surpassed it. And Folfox, of course, originated in Europe. It was, uh, they actually developed it as oxaliplatin as a drug that was given sort of a, a sine wave distribution over the with a pump because of the circadian rhythm of human beings so this is, was developed sort of in a very odd way and nobody believed in it <laughs> uh, but but 2004 it, when it, it first, they showed the first advance in mosaic the mosaic trial yeah. that also introduced the whole idea of infusional 5fu up until that time we'd been looking at bolus 5fu and i thought gosh we've got to do better than that in fact in about I think I gave a talk in 2010 or 11 at the sort of when we had all these new drugs coming on where I had a picture of the molecule of 5-FU sort of inverted as I said, this is 5-FU in the rear view mirror. <laughs> and it I turns see. out that it's not in the rear view mirror. In mm-hmm. fact, of all the drugs we use, it probably still has the biggest impact of any, I think, of any of the drugs we use in, yeah. this, in this disease. And, 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 and that's because of in the adjuvant setting, it still has curative potential. Correct. Oxali adds something, but the bulk of it is 5-FU. Correct. And 5-FU, we, we learned early on that if the whole idea of pump, using a pump, was it was too complex in the beginning. In fact, with oxaliplatin, which required a, an infusion, the, the full fox of infusional 5-FU, it was daunting. We didn't have the ability to do that. I remember trying to figure out how to process or how to, how to use pumps. But once we figured it out, so we started with bolus, you know, one daily bolus times five over eight, every 28 days. Mm-hmm. That was the Mayo Clinic regimen. Yeah. Then there was the Roswell Park regimen, which was bolus each day. I mean, all of them very toxic because you get peak, you get high peak concentrations of the drug with lots of toxicity. And then figured out the infusional 5-FU. We spent the decade of the 80s and 90s doing studies that basically tried to twist 5-FU in any different ways using uh, interferon in combination with it, you know, folinic acid, leucovorin was, was first added then. Mm-hmm. You talked about levamisole, all these different drugs that we tried to, methotrexate, yeah. all, all these combinations that didn't uh, move the move it very far at all. But uh, clearly 5-FU is, remains a mainstay of treatment. And when was the time where you started treating adjuvant disease? When did that occur? Well, so um, the first adjuvant study that was positive, I think, was in maybe 19, right when I was finishing fellowship in mm. 1988. And that was a study from the NCCTG, North Central Cancer Treatment Group, that looked at 5-FU levamisole versus uh, nothing in patients with stage, what they called Duke's B or C colon uh-huh. cancer at the time. In fact, it may have been the only time the NCI put out a directory. They put out an advisory notice that they sent to all oncologists to say there's a new standard. I see. Which this was, is uh this is a Mortel study. Well, Mortel yeah. gets Mortel it was yeah. gets credit for it. Although uh-huh. actually, I think what Mortel did is he um, he actually was it was one of the most most uh, meaningful uh, talks I think I've ever been to at ASCO. So that was that they'd done the work with levamisole yeah. at the time. Levamisole was quote an immune modulator. Yeah, it was actually used in veterinary medicine yeah. to improve the yield of uh, of. Sheep or something. Sheep or yeah, something. Yeah. Well, so Mortel at ASCO, when they presented the data, this is maybe 89, I think my first ASCO, maybe 88 or 89, he pilloried the company, which was, uh, I think, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, for the cost of levamisole. I see. Because if you went to get the veterinary store to the veterinary supply, it was like, Ten dollars a year, yeah, and it, but he he went crazy over the fact that it was a few hundred dollars yeah, a year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine our perspective today. <laughs> yeah, but 
uh, yeah, so so that that was that change that was a game changer when we first saw. Now that was a year of five FU, uh, you know, which which everybody got hepatic disease, hepatic toxicity. Everybody had fatty liver by the time that was done, and uh, levamisole, of course, stayed on the market only for a short while, because uh, unbeknownst to the people who done the study, it caused a demyelinating syndrome, mm. and so after a few years, it became obvious that it was a bad drug and I dangerous. See. I see. I didn't know the original adjuvant studies were one year of treatment. One year of treatment, yep. yeah. Hefty dose, especially where we are now. Yeah, with weekly bolus 5-FU, and people just, you just blew them, you wore them out, so. And that study, I guess, by modern staging, that would be mostly stage three patients. Right, at the time it was Duke C, but yeah. yeah, it would be, by today's standards, mostly stage three, although we used to not discriminate between stage two and stage three right. for adjuvant. In fact, the, the, uh, the, um, NSABP really to this day, they're, they're, those people from NSABP still don't believe there's a big difference between stage three and stage two disease. I see. We'll come to that. Um, let's let's talk about the early, the 2000s. The 2000s were you know an important time in colorectal cancer. You had irinotecan, oxaliplatin, and the development of Fulfox and Fulfiri, and uh, and and those were sort of the mainstays of therapy. And of course, Avastin. Right. Well, the big, the greatest, the big, the difference, the ASCO of most significance was 2004, I okay. think, which is when we had the mosaic data yeah. and the original bevacizumab data. Mitch Her the Hurwitz study. That was Herb Hurwitz's Herb study. Herb Hurwitz's study, And yeah. Herb, Herb deserves credit for it, but Herb actually had didn't have anything to do with organizing the study. It was he, Genentech. He, he, it was Genentech, and Herb was a, a known quantity who could present the data at ASCO. It was a late-breaking abstract, and he presented... The, the IFL data, yeah. I, and actually I was on the Data Safety Monitoring Committee for that study, uh, and uh, so, you know, we it was, seemed like a difference maker at the time. That was the first evidence that, that Bevacizumab or Avastin had any activity. IFL plus or minus Avastin and a four-month OS benefit. Correct. That is by far and away the biggest difference ever seen in a study with Avastin. <laughs> and uh, it goes to show you, IFL, of course, was replaced later, sh shortly thereafter by Fulfiri. Yeah. And uh, so it, it sort of augmented a bad chemotherapy and made it a better enough to lead to approval. Yeah. Um, if you tested IFL against Fulfiri, you think Fulfiri would win? It's uh, to my knowledge, it's never been tested. Never been done, I yeah. think uh, I think Fulfiri would win. It's just better tolerated. Uh, I think, if I recall, um, in the UK there was a study that sort of more or less looked at those combinations. But yeah, I think Fulfiri is better tolerated. And uh, the other thing is the bolus IFL. There was a lot of arenotecan toxicity, a lot of mm -hmm. diarrhea. Yeah. Uh, the Mace. There was a study that Mace Rothenberg sort of critiqued years ago in, in, a J, in a JCO article about how toxic it was. IFL was in the adjuvant setting too. They, they did a study. Yeah, negative study. A negative study. Yeah. But that study actually led to a, actually paid a lot of dividends. That was the first study when we designed it in the adjuvant study, we, in, we incorporated a lot of, of huge questionnaires about diet and lifestyle. Uh -huh. And that's, we've uh -huh. had numerous publications since then following patients and identifying factors lifestyle and dietary things that affect it, that appear to affect their patient survival. I see. It was also an interesting time because um, Avastin, Irinotecan, and Oxaliplatin all, in at least some studies, showed benefit in, in randomized, in metastatic setting. But in the adjuvant space, only Oxaliplatin would pull through. Right. And uh, that was very disappointing. So when, at, when Mosaic uh, came out in 2004, we rushed, people rushed to do the subsequent studies now using Avastin. Uh, Cetuximab was also included right. in an adjuvant study. Yeah. Arenotecan, there were a bunch of Arenotecan studies, both uh, Full Fury and IFL, and in, inexplicably all of them were negative, except for, uh, the, and even, you know, the Bevacizumab was negative. Cetuximab actually was harmful to patients. Mm, right. uh, and uh, the, the Full Fury studies were close, but not, you know, if you teased it out, you could maybe sh show a difference, but uh, yeah. It was disappointing. In fact, the whole this idea, the idea col collaboration, collaboration yeah. uh, stemmed from that. And in, I wrote an editorial in JCO about that a, a year or two ago. How disappointing is is it that none of these studies turned out to be positive? The paradigm of taking tr therapies in advanced disease and putting them, moving them earlier into adjuvant setting, just turns out doesn't work, at least in colon cancer. 
Yeah, it's interesting you say that because a couple years ago I got interested in this question and I had, uh, he's now a first year fellow here, Eddie Maldonado, but at the time he was a resident in Oregon. I asked him to look at breast, colon, and lung and every single drug that has ever succeeded in the metastatic space and he made a data set and I think it was like 85 drugs or something massive. And of those, how many have been tested in the adjuvant setting? It was about 65%-ish. And then how many of those succeeded in the adjuvant setting? It was about one in three. And so we see this attrition in all these tumor types, the things that work metastatic where you have measurable disease and to get a win, you just probably need to have some response rate and shrink and keep it shrunk for a while. But in the adjuvant setting where I think you need to eradicate microscopic disease, the biologic bar is higher. Right. And I, we didn't, I don't I think it was, we were simp, we thought too simply at the time. Of course, these studies were also done without the benefit of any molecular testing or mm, identifying right. subsets. <clears throat> I have no doubt if, if we could revisit it and, and choose our patients more wisely, we could probably make a difference. But but it's uh, then again, you know, I don't, you know, hard to say. But that's, I think, that's the case. Certainly, with with uh, the original cetuximab studies, for example, we were looking at EGFR staining as opposed. to, We had no idea that oh, rest right. rest right. status mattered. So, we were really we were bl flying blind for much of the much of those. We didn't think so, but we, in retrospect, we we didn't know what we were doing. One curiosity that emerged in those years was after the, the Hurwitz paper, IFL plus BEV, was a paper by Len Saltz a few years later, which was Folfox plus BEV, which I think was a JCO publication, and I think maybe coincided with your time as a deputy editor. Um, that was a study that had a PFS benefit but no OS benefit. How was that, how was that received? Yeah, so, so that was, I think, it, that sort of when you, in the whole scheme of things, that was sort of the sobering, most sobering of all the results. Mm -hmm. That that study both looked at Folfox Bev and Kpox Bev. Right. That was, I think, the the it was a, a British author with David maybe Kerr or Cunningham or some, yeah. and and that study was just didn't show a survival advantage. And in fact, um, I think that was sobering, and it still to this day makes me startled. Have trouble explaining how Folfox Bev is the default position. For, right. Default first line therapy for every colon cancer patient right. except for us and for some of us in we, those of us in academics who don't do that but uh, yeah I think the problem with Folfox clearly and the reason we didn't we could see a, a, a PFS but not a survival advantage in general with a drug is that when you're limited in the amount of drug you can use in first line because of neuropathy why how would it be that you could get so much bang for your buck in three or four months of therapy that that translates into right. a, into a survival advantage. I think that's probably the the limitation and why why we never saw the big impact that we thought we could with oxaliplatin. To this day, I think if we could give more oxaliplatin, perhaps we'd see more of an impact, but we just really can't. I see. Now, during these years, also the story of the EGFR inhibitor therapy or cetuximab comes. Of course, uh, you know I think the initial study was. Um, in a, in a, in a, in a, like second, they've relapsed more than twice, relapsed refractory cohort, cetuximab versus best supportive care, and they eked out sort of a small benefit. And then a year or two later, it was the Canadian group that identified mutations, activated mutations in RAS, that actually separated people for whom cetuximab on average had no benefit versus those in whom it had a larger benefit, a few months. Um, and then from there, the frontline studies were launched with cetuximab in combination with chemotherapy and panitumumab eventually. Right. So, so actually, so cetuximab was first shown to be effective in patients who'd failed a renotecan. Okay. Right. So yes. you, you gave a renotecan and then cetuximab. And then cetux, yeah. And it and it did seem to have an advantage. Uh, that actually got uh, Martha Stewart got in trouble over that study. <laughs> That's right. That's the imcloning, That's the right. insider trading. Correct. She 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 sold her stock when she found out that the, that the drug wasn't going to be approved by the FDA. That's right. Which was a, a stupid move on many fronts. But, uh, <laughs> right, so initially we thought you needed EGFR expression, uh, uh, amplification, and uh, then we realized that wasn't the case. And yeah. the first-line studies were launched in, in early 2000s, uh, again, w with this incredible uh, excitement that maybe we were on to, we were in a whole new era. Yeah. So, so, uh, so we had studies. There were a whole bunch of studies launched in the early two thousands with the new combinations of chemotherapy with cetuximab or with bevacizumab. And you know, I I started a study called eight hundred two hundred three, which was uh, which was short lived because we were comparing we were comparing at the time um, fulfiri with cetuximab versus fulfiri plus uh, bevacizumab, uh, but. Uh, let me think. No, no, no. I'm sorry. It was it was full. It was chemo alone versus chemo plus cetuximab. Mm -hmm. Eight hundred two hundred three was. And then when bevacizumab got approved, 
we we had to change it. So so that's where eight hundred four hundred five eight hundred four hundred five morphed in eight hundred two hundred three morphed into eight hundred four hundred five. We had about uh, four hundred patients on eight hundred two hundred three, which which unfortunately wasn't enough to answer any questions. But then eight hundred four hundred five was launched in in, in two thousand and four. Eight hundred four hundred five. The four stands for the year it was launched. It was launched in two thousand four. I don't uh-huh. think I appreciated that. Yeah, it was launched in, launched in two thousand four, and about three years into the study. We first really we realized that uh, you needed that each patients who were KRAS mutant had any mutations in RAS yeah. would not respond to the EGFR antibody, so we closed it for about a year to amend the study. Yeah, and then we also that study eight hundred four hundred five was also originally written to be chemo dealer's choice fulfurer fulfox right. with either Bev cetuximab or the combination. Oh, okay. And we we also learned that the combination was not helpful. Right. There were two studies that had shown that. In the interim, so we we closed eight hundred four hundred five for about a year and a half to amend it. We had to be agree. We had to reach agreement with the FDA on what assay we would use for RAS status. This, uh-huh. was, this was a torture, uh-huh. a- and uh, so we closed it for almost a year and a half, and then reopened it with just two arms and uh, with the uh, you know with established KRAS. We only looked at KRAS exons uh, twelve and thirteen. That's all we did. I see, and that's how this and so. It took about nine years to accrue, but it was closed for about a year and a half. This is a fascinating study, and I want to—I was wanted to walk through it with you because, uh, well, one, I remember distinctly when you presented it at ASCA. That was one of the years I was a fellow, and uh, it was a great presentation, and it was a great trial. And uh, in the years that followed, I felt like I, every year I learned something new that came out of 80405. Um, so the, the basic structure of the trial is a randomized control trial, dealer's choice, chemotherapy, uh, and you're randomized to Avastin or Cetuximab. Um, and uh, you presented analyses based on RAS mutations and then extended spectrum RAS. I wonder if you might walk through that and then maybe talk about the sidedness, what came out from right and left. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so the study we um, uh, we presented, I think, in two thousand fourteen. I think, yeah. and that uh, that study basically when we boiled it down to when we just looked at the RAS, it, we had the whole population. We had twenty four hundred patients, both from the pre. Uh, the the pre amendment cohort who had RAS mutations, which we didn't present at that point, but we took the RAS wild type patients mm-hmm. in the two arms, and we showed no difference in outcome between uh, the chemo uh, with uh, chemo Cetux versus chemo Bev. Now, it was dealer's choice, but about seventy five percent of the patients got full Fox right. because that it's was a U.S. preference. That was a U.S. preference, uh, and there was no difference across any of the cohorts. But what was unique in that study, and the reason it took so long to report out, was that the overall median survival was in the high 20s, right. 27, 28, 30 months, which was far in excess to what we'd imagined it would be in 2004 when we started the study. Right, past but, the two-year mark. The, yeah. Well, we were th- talking, we thought 20, mo- 20 yeah, months is right. what we expected. And Now, why, what was the j- difference? I think it was the, the patterns of care, but also the choice of patients. And uh, obviously, when you choose all RAS wild-type patients, or RAS wild type patients, you're picking a better population right, of patients. Right, fair enough. Yeah, but uh, but you know that was the first. The, the, it was a huge, big study, and really changed the metrics metrics of what we could expect to see in patients with colon cancer. The, the it was controversial because at the same time uh, there was a study called Fire Three from the from Germany and Austria which showed that the patients who got, in their case, cetuximab, more or less similar design, although they, all the patients had fulfiry, right. uh, cetux versus fulfiry-bab, they showed us an advantage to the, uh, to the cetuximab group, right. although it's a little, a little deceiving. Their original result was, uh, was, no, was a null study. So the first presentation of it was it, the study was designed to look at response rate as adjudicated by the investigator. And it morphed into a into a, an overall survival study uh, that was largely run by the corporate sponsor, the manufacturer, yeah. And uh, and I the power was less than your study. Was the sample power, size was less? Power yeah. was like was was appreciably less. It was eight hundred or right. nine hundred patients. But um, anyway, it was quite controversial because they had shown a, a benefit to cetuximab, and we saw no benefit at all. Right. And I mean, obviously, the questions that come up with that study is that you know, not the not the original primary endpoint that was extended, inadequate power, and of course, you always run the risk of a spurious false positive result. So then, yeah, that was your initial presentation. But since then, you guys have dug deeper into further exclusions of people with other um, extended spectrum RAS mutations and even BRAF. 
And when you do that, then it appears that Cetuximab has sort of a favorable advantage. Right. So, uh, so the first, when as as you essentially weed out, weed out the patients who couldn't get benefit from Cetuximab. Right. So we, we we went back and we did looked at all RAS any RAS mutation, uh, and now we didn't even look at BRAF during the conduct of the study. I see. But uh, when we eliminated any RAS mutation, you picked again the patients who were likelier to benefit from Cetuximab, and you did see an advantage. Not quite statistically significant in our study, but but certainly in Fire Three, a big dramatic difference. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, it also raised the the issue though of you know what, what we didn't understand was how we could have such a different result because Fire Three it, it looked like it, uh, in the in context the studies were very similar. So uh, so that that was the one question we had. I remember when I pre at the plenary session after I presented. You know, my wife and kids were there, and you know, so we they walked with me. You know, it was it was a very heady time in your career when you get to do a right. plenary paper. There's nothing quite like it. Uh, so we're going to to a sort of a side room where they have they have questions and answers, and when we get into the new the other hallway for the other hall for the uh, questions. The first speaker was was from Europe, and he just said, "This is a this is fraud." You know, he <laughs> he, he just basically. And my wife was just was startled by uh -huh. it. I said, "Oh, I knew I knew he was going to do that." I see. <laughs> but uh, you know, there's a lot of I, I no competition actually with the investigators themselves, with uh, with Heinemann and uh, Stinsing from from Fire Three, but the Europeans really took took issue with our results. They just didn't believe them. Were there differences in post-protocol care, such as the receipt well, of second-line Avastin? And there such? were yeah. differences. So they were likely to get BEV beyond progression in the U.S., sure. uh, which was one thing. Um, I think they, uh, they're just the, the FIRE 3 recommended second-line therapies, which were by definition going to be less effective. Right. Um, but it still was a big difference. And that what led me to explore the sidedness was trying right. to try, trying to explain how we could get such a difference. I thought maybe there's just a different population of patients that we have, and that's that's how I how I explored sidedness. So let's talk about sidedness. So what what do we know today about sidedness? Well, we know that patients with right-sided colon cancer, primaries that originate in the right side, if you and you can take that. When we did the original analysis, we considered it from the uh, from the hepatic flexure, but if you go all the way to the splenic flexure, so including the transverse colon wow. on the right side, it still shake out the same. Those patients do appreciably worse than right. patients with left-sided cancer. Right, and and I just explored it. Um, the truth is, I we knew we thought all along maybe there was a difference, but I didn't really think there could be that big of a difference. Right. But in, back in two thousand and I think thirteen or fourteen, I'd given a lecture at. Uh, at Cornell, a memorial lecture for a guy named Scott Wadler, who had died of, uh, who was a colleague of mine, who had died of a brain tumor, uh, sort of mid-career. And uh, so as I was preparing to give this memorial lecture, I decided, well, I'm going to look into what the studies he's, what, what he's written, see what his papers were. Right. And he had a paper in like 2000, in, post posthumously, I think in 2001, people had written a paper about a study he'd done with 5-FU and various per perturbations in ECOG. And where he showed there was a difference in in the paper, there's a there's sort of a paragraph that says patients with left-sided primary tumors live 15 months, and patients with right-sided tumors live 10 months. Interesting. And I looked at that, I said, "Gee, I wonder, boy, that's so." Um, so I started thinking about it, and by this time we'd figured we knew about BRAF, right? And we thought of that as a right-sided uh, mutation. Mutation, right? And what would happen is we'd see patients uh, in who we thought assumed had BRAF mutations because they had right-sided colon cancer and they did poorly, and sure, sure enough, they didn't have BRAF mutations. Hmm. So, so we thought there's something different about right-sided. Now, I see. we'd always said, well, right-sided tumors present later because there's let takes longer to manifest uh, symptoms in the bowel. That was the explanation. But what I did is I now, of course. Uh, then I said, so let's look at the sidedness. So, whoops, we hadn't asked the question of sidedness in the data sheets. Right. So, so I raised money, and oh, actually, you had to recode the data. We had to recode the data. So, what wow. we did is I raised money and got got all the all the all the records copied, uh -huh. and and then sent to me. And I had one a fellow at the time. And a woman, a young woman who's now a resident at UCSF mm -hmm. in medicine, internal medicine, but who was a, a research coordinator for me back then. Mm -hmm. And the three of us, we basically went through 2,300 charts to dis determine sidedness, and we defined what the, you know, what how we would we had we needed absolute 
evidence of the side. It couldn't be like it alluded to. You had to have proof of it. Okay. I sent all the all the data to my my statistical people at sure. Duke, and about two months later, I get an email with like a multiple red uh, exclamation points on it, and I open it up, and it, she have to have the results, which showed this you know 16 month difference in survival between sides. Fascinating. And I and I called her up, Donna Nitzwicky. I said, Donna, rerun the data. That's impossible. Right. And she said, I re ran it three times. This wow. is the result. Of the 2,300 patients you coded, there must be some patients you could not attribute right. sidedness to. Yeah. About uh, 60 or 70, we couldn't figure out the side. That's it? So little. Yeah. So, but mind you, we had to dig into it. So you took the, all the all the medical records, and you, if you, you'd, you'd find somewhere in the medical record, uh, you know, the surgeon talked about what operation they'd done or right. something like that. But about 60 or 70, we couldn't categorize. That's what I always tell people, which is like... Um... Some of the best research projects, you know, everyone looks for the easy project. They can use some computer and answer it. But the research, the real research projects that haven't been done that are really insightful are the ones where you have to get to the bottom of something. Well, I, again, I still am, it's kind of hard to believe. You know, it's sort of in a way as a clinician who'd done this for years, it was hard for me to believe I didn't, we didn't realize that this was such a difference. Yes. And that, that was sort of startling. Maybe, yeah, that's interesting. It's an interesting cognitive thing because once it's metastatic, you just think of them as a metastatic right. patient. Right, yeah, and you don't think about, right, yeah. Um, but let me, let me. So, but not only did you find the difference between, I think, uh, the prognosis, but you also found an interaction between right and left and, 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 and the randomization of uh, right. CLGB. Right, so it turns out that, uh, that, sutuximab, that patients with right-sided cancer get, got essentially no benefit from cetuximab. the EGFR antibodies, regardless of the RAS status. In fact... Small numbers. We had about 200 mute, RAS mutant patients from the original pre-amendment cohort, and the survival in that population was about the same as in the RAS mutation group as the left-sided patients who got cetuximab, compared to and much better than the patients with RAS wild type who got cetuximab uh, with right-side disease. Interesting. Now that may be because if you think about it, when you take RAS mut mutant patients, you exclude BRAF mutant patients right. because they're mutually exclusive. Right. So, so I, we think that may be ex have explained it. Mm. it when well, we did, we did, we've done numerous analyses and we've not, we, uh, right-sidedness is a surrogate after all. It's right, for like, biology. It's a biology. And we, we've, we've done some, uh, some, uh, some modeling with artificial intelligence modeling to try to explain this, but we're close, but we, we, we're not sure we can explain it other than that patients with right side disease appear to have a, a panoply of mutations that are unfavorable compared to patients with left sided disease. Interesting. I mean, one of the other things that people maybe have anchored on so strongly is obviously one of the most seductive things about colon cancer was that Vogelgram, the original Bert Vogelstein's mutation, you know, the right. four mutations and that chart, I know I got a lot of airtime. But the more you see that chart, you think that all colon cancer left and right has the same four series of mutations. But I think emerging evidence has shown that it's fundamentally different on the right versus the left. Well, it shouldn't surprise us, right? right. If, you, if you go back to embryology, which, of course, we all remember embryology, <laughs> the right colon comes from the midgut and the left colon comes from the hindgut. Mm -hmm. And they merge at the transverse colon during embryogenesis. So it's t tissues of different origin right and so i it i it, i didn't really think of that in terms of, until i started saying well, how could this be right. and then you realize well there may be different structures interesting the tissues of different origin and and the contact with environmental exposure exactly. is fundamentally different exactly yeah. exactly the and you know a lot of effort in the microbiome in terms of sidedness there if you if you which we're doing a lot of work on now we're just touching we're just basically getting touching the surface of it but if you look at the microbiome on the right side of the colon versus left it's different now the next thing i want to talk to you about in colorectal cancer before i'll shift to sort of the broader career questions i have for you the colorectal cancer question was the adjuvant setting so how did we you know uh, what are your thoughts on idea what are your thoughts on 3 versus 6 months of uh, and what are your thoughts about you know, do you think Zolota is more potent than 5-FU? Yeah. Yeah. So this troubles me. I, I think this is an example of us where we. I think we've overanalyzed study results. Mm -hmm. um, the idea was a was a was a good idea. <laughs> Dan Sargent, who has yeah, passed, passed away, away actually tragically before the study was completed, he basically just powered his way to get this done. I see. This is uh, you know se seven cooperative groups around the world put twelve thousand patients together after the fact after studies had already been launched. And the idea was to gain the power to really see if there was a difference in, between uh, 
these different the duration of therapy, which is the obvious benefit of less oxafolfox is less neuropathy. Right. Um, the study was essentially this is a problem with non inferiority. It's it's hard to prove. There was just no difference if when you when you put the the, the survival curves up. There's no difference, but right. it was not didn't quite reach non inferiority. But if you teased it out, uh, people thought that well, uh, the Zolota arm, the oral uh, oxalic, the oral five FU equivalent, seemed that group seemed to get a slight benefit compared to the rest of the patients with three versus six months, which suggests that capecitabine is a better. Uh, treatment, but but it's it's hard. It's really first of all that wasn't a, a that wasn't a question sure. we asked in the beginning. Sure. And it's hard for me to understand how we could accept it in the U.S. when you consider that the study done in the U.S. to contribute to the idea collaboration didn't include capecitabine as a choice. <laughs> it, we 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 had full it, our that study was full Fox it was it was duration as well as the use of celecoxib. Oh, that's right, uh, but, the celecoxib but, study. Yes. But the point is that we didn't include cape as a right. as an option. So how we could adopt that for ourselves, I don't, I don't know, and I don't think so. I don't believe that it answers the question. In fact, I think capecitabine is is we don't like it very much. I mean, one of the differences, the reason we didn't use it in the U.S. The hand foot. It, well, is actually because the dosing of the capecitabine uh -huh. in, in in the U.S. People tolerate a much lower dose of capecitabine than they do in Europe. What do we give? Thousand? They give twelve fifty or Correct. something? Correct. Oh, and, and and there have been numerous studies that clearly show greater toxicity in the U.S. per dose. And if people have said it's because we have folate in our cereals. Yeah. But probably we actually have a paper in press yeah. that it, it, there's some. It, it's got to do with the microbiome. I see. So so many some parts some populations of people have actually enzymes in their microbiome that activate capecitabine, the prodrug, into the active drug before it gets absorbed. I see. Okay. And, and uh -huh, so uh -huh. it, it's activated in the gut, and they get more GI toxicity and can tolerate less drug. Fascinating. I see. Uh, and and so you have two pieces of evidence. You have this um, a biological reason and a empirical fact that we're giving lower doses combined with the fact that the randomized data is not from this country. Right. Right. And okay. also be, the randomized data, what it was, is a dose we don't use in this country. Right. Right. So how we could apply it, I don't. For the life of me, I don't understand. I never agreed with that interpretation. That's interesting. But you do agree with the duration part. Yes, I think. Th not surprising. Three months. You know what self-respecting cancer cell is going to is going to hang around for three months and then die suddenly on the fourth month of therapy. Yeah. So um, I, that I believe. Yeah, that's. Remember, um, we started with a year and we've worked our way back down. So. Right. Well, so, that's good, and it's a good balance, I think, where we are now. Um, do you have any differences if the patient is, um, you know, got some high risk features? They've perforated colon or very large T4 lesion or something like that. Well, so the problem is, of course, what what's better than, you know, what's so we would go to six months, right. but but it's um, marginally so clearly better. clearly we need to change what we're doing. Okay, we need better drugs or better choice of drugs. I have no doubt that we treat patients who don't need treatment at all, and of course treat some patients we treat who don't get benefit at all. So wouldn't be nice. Would be nice if we could figure out who who's what. And uh, a bunch of uh, of these, uh, you know, these genetic tests that are suggestoid. I think right now the most promising thing is uh, circulating tumor DNA, right? <clears throat> yeah, which may very well distinguish who who doesn't need chemotherapy at least. That's good. <clears throat> I got to ask you about Keynote One Seventy Seven. What are your thoughts on yeah for the MSI high patients up front? Well, so that's a great that's a, a good study. I mean, it's it's a, again fascinating. This is a, another example though of. of you get results, you just have to figure them out because it's not <laughs> right. what you expect. Yeah. So the curves favor chemotherapy in the first uh, four to six months. People miss that. People don't see that. Yeah. <laughs> but that's very important yeah. to realize. And that's because about a third of patients with MSI high colon cancer get no benefit at all from the checkpoint. Inhibitor. Right. It's like sugar water. Yeah. Right. right. And so, so that's another example. And in fact, in Keynote 177, uh, about 20% of patients never got chemotherapy. Mm, that's tough. Oh, my gosh. Now, if you look at 80405, the yeah. cohort who were MSI high, the median survival was 30 months in yeah. that population. Yeah. So if you if you start with a checkpoint inhibitor, and, you know, people keep p patients on their checkpoint inhibitor because they they think the progression is pseudo-progression. Yeah, right. Okay. I think there are probably more papers written about pseudo-progression than patients who've had pseudo-progression. <laughs> at least in colorectal cancer, but, yeah. But, but yeah. So, so I think there's a danger there. So Keynote 177 
clearly tells us that in the long haul, right, it's a good it's a good strategy, but not for everybody. So. Yeah, I, I I really echo that. There's there's people with a lot of disease, and it's growing. And if you give them Pembro, there's a fraction that it's not doing anything in it, right. and they're going to die before they ha- ever get an effective drug. Correct. And th- and that's I think so. The patients yeah. with high volume disease, I think now I I don't know why we couldn't combine them. That's what I wondered. Why, and, and yeah, that's what the lung cancer that, docs. I see. Doing yeah, full it flux Pembro. Right. Yeah. But but it you know they there was this idea that chemo and Immune therapies would be counteractive to Antagonistic, each other, and so, right. so they, they didn't do that. Yeah, but in lung cancer, they've they tied right. it all tight together. Who'd have thunk that lung cancer would move further, way ahead of colon cancer? Very distressing. To me. <laughs> they've got like eighteen different, you know, I don't know all these TKIs for e- each specific EGFR mutation. And, <laughs> and, 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 yeah, they do. We got the exon twenty now. Yeah, it's yeah, really, really frustrating. Yeah, that's true. It it did come as a surprise. I wouldn't have guessed it, even even when I was a fellow. They had a few hints, but I wouldn't have guessed it. It's come like this. Well, they're still not close in median survival. I think they still right. Lie. Yeah, especially in the real world. Um, okay, let me ask you some of the career questions that I think people will be dying to hear your answer for. Um, I guess, um, you know, you've done so many things in your career. You've, we didn't even touch on half the things, working with FDA, running trials, working with companies, um, negotiating all these things. Um, you were the deputy, deputy editor of the JCO. Um, I wonder if you might start with that. You know, what was it like to be the editor? And what, um, you know, what, what, does it, what do you know having been editor that you know, people might want to know about how they can put their own research in a more favorable light from the eyes of an editor? Yeah, that was actually a great experience. At the time, we had only one editor for GI and JCO for much of my my stay there, which was really really a lot of work. Um, first of all, it was really an incredible honor to be invited. I mean, I didn't know Steve Canistra, who was the editor in chief, but uh, you know, they they gave me the opportunity. I mean, it was cool because you saw everything be everything in GI came before came across my desk before it was published, so you knew what was going on. Um, at the time, though, you, you know, first, the, the, it's hard to say what it took. Right back then, we were um, we were just really looking for far, international authors and all. I think these days, though, you really have to have us. The JCO has upgraded its quality a lot, and I think uh, they're looking for you know randomized data and not more the same. Uh, back then, uh, you know, it, this was uh, I stepped down seven, six, seven years ago. It was we would get, you know, literally so many. Uh, pub- the other thing is, is a lot of people just send things to JCO as a wish, right? And we got we got so many, <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so it's hard to say. You know, I, I still to this day get people ask me whether I think something is of JCO quality. It's it's hard to say. I mean, its its impact factor is pretty high. On the other hand, uh, Lancet Oncology and you know uh, JAMA Oncology they've upgraded themselves as well. So right. uh, I think JCO is still a, a preeminent a place to put things. But uh, I think um, you know it was a great experience. But but it, how much work was it a week? Well, yeah, a ton of work. It was a lot of work. Yeah, a- and. Uh, it was, uh, and also the editor in chief had great ex- had expectations of he wanted the letters to be, you know, I, I tended to write brief letters, right, and he liked them to be more detailed and more the rejection letters, the rejection letters. Oh my gosh! And so, so it was a lot of work. I would say I probably spent ten hours a week on JCO, as and then about three, two and a half years into my tenure, we added another uh, editor in GI. That was Joel Tepper. Mm-hmm. And that helped me a lot. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it, I mean, it was, it was really exciting. Uh, the main things that I loved about it was the opportunity to solicit right. interesting things. So if there's a paper came out somewhere else, I could solicit a, an editorial or a commentary on it. And it, I think that that was that was cool. Yeah, I think it's it's got to be a great perspective. But I do personally, when I I imagine and I see, uh, it's got to be a lot of work. You know, the JCO has done one thing now. They they charge you sixty dollars to submit, which will weed out some of these right well, wishes. I, I think that's not enough. Probably it's not need enough to charge yeah. <laughs> more. I mean, the the problem is too many people back then would submit papers and get a sort of expect to get a free review, mm. and uh, and that was if you're depending on volunteerism of of your of the people you send the journals around to so it was uh, but it was really great experience i elected not to do it for a second term just because it was so much work and i just decided that i you know i I believe that there are other people who can do these things and 
actually Andrew Coe. I recommended Andrew Coe, who uh-huh. who succeeded me. I see. Oh, good. And which is so keeping it sort of in the family, yeah, for, in a in way. Yeah, the UCSF family. But uh, but I just think you know you don't. Uh, I chaired the GI committee for the Alliance for seven years. And I also stepped down from that. I mean, there are plenty of other people who could do it. I didn't see a reason to, to continue doing it. Let me ask you about your work with the companies. You've talked about you've been on DSMBs before. You've done helped companies out with preparing for drug advisory panels and things of that nature. Um, you know, how has that experience been? And have you learned? And, and we're here. So, you know, the location is also ripe for that. We have Genentech just a stone's throw from where we're sitting right now. Well, uh, it's been interesting. I, I've, first of all, you see over the years, companies just keep changing and changing. Mm-hmm. Genentech, they, they literally re- reboot every two or three or four years, it seems. Uh, some of the things that surprise me the most is how many companies don't know, the right arm hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Uh-huh. <laughs> like you, you'd go to a, co- we used to spend, uh, 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 I'd bring my group to Genentech for a day. Yeah. It, w- it was great. That's wonderful. It was just fabulous. But And we would, we and I literally one day, this is years ago, I remember hearing presentations from two different groups uh, on different treatments in the same exact patient population. They were they were planning to do studies with different treatments, and they ha- they didn't know it internally. Oh wow! I, I just said, uh, "Whoops." Oh. So, um, I, I mean, I th- I think what you realize is though that they're really in it for the same reason we're in it, which is to make a difference in patients. Of course, they want to make money. But most of the most of the people, the people actually doing the research right. and doing the science, are there just to make a difference. Uh, and after all, without them, we couldn't do what we do because they have the pot, they have the deep pockets. So uh, I've I've always believed that we need to work collaboratively and positively. I've I've never viewed it as as you know people, you know, sort of being turncoats by going to fo- industry. I think that we need good people in industry. Well, I always tell people that um, you know I've given lectures. Uh, Uh, pharmaceutical companies and uh, by Zoom and in person before that. Um, And I always say that the best best questions come from that audience because they really know this material, they're really engaged, and uh, they've asked me some of the toughest questions I get asked, and actually it's the most stimulating for me as a speaker. Right. I think the most interesting thing I do, for example, is I typically I'll often work with companies on for mock ODACs. Right, yeah. It's incredibly interesting because they're basically, they expose all their weaknesses and and my job is to be be hypercritical, which right. which I like doing, but it's uh, I mean that's incredibly interesting and and again this is just trying to make a difference. You're just trying to you know my view is if we don't if pharma doesn't put their money in the right places then it's we lo- all lose. Of course, if they invest and pursue failing compounds, right, right we all lose and our patients lose when they get accrued for these trials. Right. Let me ask you this: What you know. You're somebody who's had, you know, a very distinguished career. You've done so many super important things, and you're still doing important things. Um, I guess my question for you is, um, you know, what, what, what? I don't know. Do you, do you view it that way? Do you view it as were there hard times? Did you ever think about pivoting and doing something different? What's kept you at the university? What's kept you at the same university for so long without career switches? Well, um, maybe I'm risk averse. I, 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 I can't say. I mean, it's a lovely place to live. And I think uh, I've had opportunities come my way, uh, and and generally I like going to work every day. So I've never found a need to switch. Mm-hmm. I for a lot, lot of time I kept thinking I wanted to be a, a chief of a division. Right. Until you look at jobs and you say why why would I want to be a chief of the division? <laughs> and I was a, a I was the interim chief or the acting chief when Margaret Tempera was the president of ASCO. Mm-hmm. Which, which being an interim chief is not a winning job. Right? <laughs> everything that goes well is it gets the credit goes to the chief, uh-huh, and everything uh-huh. that goes bad, the credit the, the discredit goes, to, goes yeah. to me. Um, I you know I period occasionally have looked to to go into industry or yeah. I, I I have looked at other jobs around the country, but um, never really felt that. In general, uh, part of the problem what I've I realized about myself is. I dig really deep into these positions, and like I know, I'm in the weeds uh, here. For example, I know all about the research infrastructure and the, how the funding goes. It drives me crazy sometimes, but I know enough to look elsewhere when I look at other jobs, and I, I invariably see that things are not as good as they appear. Mm. And uh, I in also think that if you're going to take another job, you have to really take it with the intention of succeeding. And you need resources for that. Mm-hmm. And at least the jobs I've looked at, maybe I just they don't people only look at me if they're not willing to give resources. 
But uh, no, no, the job, no, the jobs I've looked at in general, I didn't think they had enough resources. And then the exceptions, let's say University of Chicago, I, I was recruited there early mm -hmm. in my career. That was would have been a great job. Mm -hmm. That was it, to this the sort of who's who in oncology. Well, you trained at University yeah, of Chicago. Yeah, medical so, student there. So Mark Retain yeah. and Everett Vokes yeah. and Harry, Harvey Gollum before that. Right. I mean, just um, amazing people. Rich Shilsky. Yeah. Um, but that was whether we want to live in Chicago. Right. And and it's I, the best city in the world. Seven months a year. I like to tell right. people. Well, well, <laughs> just also, those other months. Also, we were deciding where we were going to live, and yeah. so we woke up one morning. We decided to to start out the morning in, I don't know, Wilmette or something. Which yeah. Is, and drove into University it's of Chicago. It's a bit of a drive. Oh my God. It's a bit of a drive. And so um, so we decided not to do that. And other than that, I've never really seriously looked elsewhere. Mm. Um, you know, my uh, my wife's family's here in California. Our kids love California, mm -hmm. so although they both went back east to college. But, uh -huh. but now they're back. Uh, well, one is back. Oh, one's back. Yeah. The other one's still in Washington, is in Washington, D.C. now. But So that's what kept you here. Um, I guess my question is this. Um, young people who come to you. I mean, you know, I want, I wonder if, uh, you know, I'm not a fellow, but um, imagine a fellow were to come to you, first-year fellow, they're just starting, and they said, Dr. Vinuk, I want to have a career as um, an oncolo academic oncologist. I want to be a clinical trialist. Um, what advice would you give them about the practical aspects of it, and maybe what advice would you give them about, you know, what kind of attitude, this, you know, think people always give you maybe practical suggestions. I'm curious what yours are, but I'm also curious, like, you know, what kind of attitude do you need? How... How should you handle um, this world where people are talking about burnout and wellness as well as the need to do all this stuff and it's hyper-competitive and also, you know, we want to balance our lives? What, what would you advise this young person? That's a great question. And uh, I thought a lot about that. You know, one of the greatest pleasures I get is mentoring. Uh, and I've been lucky mm -hmm. enough to work with really good people and have, I think get, get some credit for mentoring some, some folks who've been pretty successful. The problem now is I think it's a way harder to do this than it was when I started. Uh, when I started, there was a vacuum. I mean, I could, I, it was, it, I should, could say, well, let's focus on something nobody else knows anything about, and suddenly I'm an expert in the area. <laughs> it don't work that way anymore. <laughs> and uh, it's also the, the whole, the dri driv driving for RVUs, the, the need to see patients, the need, I, I think the, the regulatory burden uh, all of these factors make it really daunting for, for young people to follow this career. One of my fellows, maybe 10 years ago, uh, when he decided to go into practice, he says, you know, Dr. Vinuk, it's so hard for you to succeed. If, you ha if it's hard for you to succeed, how could I possibly succeed? Well, you could succeed, but um, I think it's really tough. I mean, it, the, the truth is so much of what we do is extra hours. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's you need funding. I mean, the only way I've succeeded, my group has succeeded, is by raising a lot of philanthropy, mm -hmm. and and that shouldn't be required, but but it is. So at least at UCSF, but UCSF is not unique. I think almost yeah, every, every place this is a situation. I'm really worried about our ability to sustain clinical investigation going forward. I I just think it's getting to the point where it's, I'm not sure how we do it. Um, because after all, if we're going to do advance our field now, it'll take more studies with fewer patients as we look for subsets of subsets. Right. And that's more regulatory work. That's much more effort to even open any studies. Right. And I'm, I'm very concerned about it. I mean, for every, uh, our group, I've been lucky. I think our group has been quite successful. Right. And, you know, I've got Katie Kelly, for example, who's literally just, uh, I think, the top of the heap in, mm -hmm. in, in liver cancer. Chloe Atreya, who's who's really incredibly advanced, um, but I think uh, succeeding, starting out from scratch these days is going to be very difficult. There's one thing you said that I think, uh, in terms of like the personal attributes that you mentioned, um, that I picked up on was, um, you know, you were thinking about sightedness, and then you said that there was this paper from several years back that had mentioned it, it was sort of a throwaway, and a lot of people missed it. But I think that's a that's a trait that people don't put their finger on often, which is that. You know, you're a curious person. You're the kind of person who would have, you commit yourself to colorectal cancer, you're going to read all the articles you can about colorectal cancer, particularly when you're starting out. And that's a kind of thing that's just going to sit in the back of your mind. You know, it's just going to sit there for a while, and then one day you're going to find that that's an insight that leads to this really important publication. And that's a trait that we don't tell people, which is that, um, what's the phrase? The phrase is, um, 
you lose days by not losing hours. You lose a lot of time in your career by not taking a little time to just sometimes just keep up on what people are doing. You know, it, it, there's nothing in it for you to just, you know, end of the day, spend 30 minutes reading a few papers in your field. You never thought it's related to what you're doing, but maybe someday that it might strike you in the future. You sound like the kind of person who does that. Well, and I think, I think actually it's, it's hit some in the, I think the pandemic has made me more pessimistic about our ability to do these things because so much of the in the ideas or the ideas that we get come not from the zoo, the meeting, not from right. the conference, but from milling around for five minutes afterwards, where you might exchange thoughts or say, "What right. about this?" And and we don't get that at all. And I think, and also I think that people are so inundated with other responsibilities. You know, when I early in my career, for example, I would go into the operating room and just hold retractors so I could learn and understand you know, what's involved in a Whipple, mm -hmm. what's involved in a liver resection. You get a whole different perspective right. on it, and you can't do that these days. Right, you just don't have the time. And so uh, I just think, and again, I also had time to think. And even even now, I mean, I'm really very privileged. I've got two endowed chairs, uh, you know, which is which I'm very fortunate to have. With that, that means that I basically have time to think. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a it's something that not many people have the opportunity to do, and I, I think that's all that's really a problem. And that's why I think going forward, it, you, it I'm worried about faculty who, who aspire. I, I worry about you, you know, and work at it. I think women faculty in particular have been really hard hit by the pandemic, the because so much of the household chores and child rearing has fallen back on them. Um, but you know, I, I'm lucky. I, it was an era where it was easier. Now, now I just don't. I, I'm really worried about our ability to do this. Yeah, um, I think uh, I, I share a lot of your concerns in the sense that, um, you know, I think people are not given a lot of that time up front, and I think. Um, you know, we spend so much of the time talking about biomarkers, the biomarkers that predict who really benefits from treatments, who doesn't. And that's a place in where academics, academic departments have always pushed sometimes a little bit counter to industry, industry's interests in the sense that their market share was going to fall a little bit. But that's an important work to do, and the ability to get funds to do that kind of work is dwindling. Um, and so that is a real challenge that we face. And that, well, you know, and I think, the, the, you know, in a way, the other thing that is fortunate is I have some of it is luck. I took care. I happened to take care of people who had means, and nothing like grateful patients to to express their 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 appreciation for you. And you know, to this day, I still have that opportunity. And that's it. Shouldn't be that you need to raise funds to do this kind of work. But right. that's that's really what it's, it's taken. And the last thing I'd say that you that you said that I thought was really spot on, which is that. Um, um, you know, when you really want to understand how an institution works and you want to understand how you can find your own space in that institution, you got to figure out how the money flows through the institution. Because if you want people to do things for you and you know how they benefit by doing those things, you're just in a much more powerful position. Right. And that's, um, <laughs> that, that's uh, one of the reasons I'm still hanging out and doing what I'm doing is I think I do think that there's enough people who think I realize that I understand I, I know how to radio label a dollar and figure out where it goes, <laughs> and and, and uh -huh. it's really it uh -huh. really is incredibly important. Yeah. And so um, so I th I think what I'm doing now is more trying to figure out the in research infrastructure and trying to fix what I what I see is it's not unique to UCSF, but it's the whole system is just plain broken. And um, so uh, that's that's what keeps me going because I I think there are a lot of incredibly capable young people who, are, who have great careers ahead of them if we can just figure out how to make it make a little easier for them to do what they're trying to do. Alan Vinook, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a great discussion. I think listeners really enjoy it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.